1: This is a Crowd Podcast.
0: Paul Walker doesn't do much social media. He can't. The phone reception's patchy. In the winter, if it rains hard, there's barely even a road. He lives in the hills north of Santa Barbara, 90 miles from Los Angeles. It might as well be light years away. The only stars he sees are the ones shining bright in the night sky. The only people around are Paul and a few friends. And the only noise? Crickets. They hang out for days on end. They hunt. They trek. They fish. They surf. They bum about on dune buggies and dirt bikes. They plant trees and repair fences. And at the end of each evening, they sit they drink deep and they laugh long. It's social, not much media though. But something's caught Paul's eye. Something's hooked in his brain. A quote that rings true and won't stop until it's sheared. Not one from Hollywood's latest self help trend, one from the 1920s. It's from a deaf, blind socialist. A woman who fought for disability rights and transfixed crowds around the world with her speeches. Helen Keller. And a century later, her words still resonate for Paul. So he types them into a tweet. No explanation, no context, just Helen's words. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing at all. That's what he writes and he hits send firing them at two million followers down in Los Angeles, across America and far beyond. But really there's more to the quote, more than fits in 140 characters. Helen goes on. This is what she says. Avoiding danger is no safer in the long run than exposure. That's how Helen sees it. It's how Paul does too. They both make that call. But it's a decision that can't be contained. That decision doesn't live in isolation. No one does. Family, friends, fans, all of them are affected. Danger has a domino effect. If one of us falls, it knocks on others. And sometimes, for the young, fast and free, that penny can take a while to drop. On the wall, the phone's ringing. Paul doesn't know whether to answer it. Things are complicated. It could be good news. But it's probably bad. Deadlines are piling up. He needs to write essays. He needs to pay bills. He needs to have some hard conversations. Paul's 24 and he needs to find direction. He was always the cool kid. A square-jawed, sun-kissed Californian cliché. He's the oldest of five. His mother's a model. His father clears sewers. It's a blue-collar house set off by some razor-sharp cheekbones. Paul's dad boxes. He pulls on gloves for tiny crowds in small halls. It's not the big time. It's a part-time side hustle, putting away a little more cash for the family. And Paul can punch as well. He scraps in the schoolyard. When his straight-talking or good looks get him in trouble, his fists get him out of it. There's always a party to crash, a road trip to plan, a basketball game to star in, a new girl to hook up with. That's life for Paul, and that works in high school. But now it's wearing thin. He's graduating and drifting. He's doing a degree in marine biology. He wants to know more about the sea he serves in. It's tough though, he works jobs, he's drinking hard. It doesn't leave him much time for the books and money's running out. The final demands are getting angry. The bailiffs are knocking, Paul keeps living dangerously and the phone keeps ringing. And then he gets the news, the message that knocks him sideways. His girlfriend's pregnant. One of his girlfriends is pregnant. It isn't planned. Paul's plans are very different. This is what he says about that time. I knew where I was at with chicks and having fun. I mean, I was sleeping with her friends, for crying out loud. I was an animal. I wanted to be there. And my heart wanted to be in it. But the mind just wasn't following it. Paul's torn. One part of him wants to give what he had. The big brood, the rough, tumble, and cuddle of family life. Paul like his dad, as protector and provider. But there's another part, a restless part, that wants to keep tearing up trees rather than putting down roots. A part that wants to be the author of his own adventure. A part that wants family life as a later chapter, not the next one. And that's the part that proves stronger. His daughter arrives, her name's Meadow. She's as bright and clear as a new day, but she's in Hawaii, 2,000 miles away from him in California. Paul's burdened by college fees, by child support payments, by guilt. But he realizes there's a way to lighten the load. Paul can cash in on the cliche, turn some of those good looks into good money. He can provide for his daughter, Buy some time and finish his degree. His mother knows people in show business. Movers, shakers, casting directors. He's been a model since he was two. Could barely walk before he was the smiling face of Pampers Nappies. And he does soaps, sitcoms, a few films that go straight to video. Small parts mostly. So now he goes for an audition, a feature film, a real payday. He goes at it like he goes at life, strides into the room with a big smile and strong handshake. And gradually, the casting director notices something. This is what dawns on him. It wasn't until a few minutes of chatting that I noticed the women in the room were speechless. Not just speechless, frozen, literally agape. Paul reads his lines, thanks them for the chance, and leaves the room. We'll call you, they tell him. Except they don't need to. At the end of the day, Paul comes back. He's already got the part, but he doesn't know that yet. That's not what he wants to talk about. Paul wants his headshots back. The professional black and white portrait photos that budding actors hand out to anyone who'll take them. Paul can't afford to get any more printed, so if they don't mind, that's when they tell him he's got the part. And his adventure is about to take a whole new turn. We'll get back to that after this short break.
1: Hello, I'm Sam Walker. I've spent the last few months talking to this guy. I'm a hunter. It's what I do. He's called KC. Our rules of engagement are pretty simple. If we have to pull a trigger on one person, they're all going to go. He's an American vigilante. And there is one of the biggest men I've ever seen. And he's got a knife in his hand. He rescues kidnapped children. There's no feeling in the world like putting a child back in the arms of its parents. By any means necessary. Well, it's ugly. You want me to make sure I don't hurt anybody? He scares me. And he kind of looked at me and I said, I swear to God, I said, if you do anything other than what I told you to do, I said, I'm going to kill you right here. And he might scare you. About got tears in your eyes right now just thinking about that, don't you? Download the podcast, American Vigilante. Download American Vigilante. Out now. Now. for this upcoming award season race. We hope that you will join us on all of the various podcasting networks. We look forward to seeing you over at nextbestpicture.com.
0: A black Nissan and a white Mitsubishi pull up out of the pack. They creep up to the starting line. As the sun dances on the nearby river, the sound of honking horns and screaming drivers is drowned out by the sonic blast of the two engines revving for takeoff. A stocky Latino dude in a blinding yellow shirt stands in the middle of the highway and raises his hands. Both cars lurch and halt like chained pit bulls, their wheels spitting out black smoke. The hands drop. It sounds like a film script, doesn't it? But it's not. Not yet. It's reality, retold in an article in Vibe magazine, the May 1998 edition. On the front cover is a rapper called Master P. A cigar's hanging from his lips, and he's wearing a camo shirt over his bare chest. The article inside is about a different scene. Kids from New York and their juiced-up Japanese cars Illegal drag races in the dead of night for bundles of dollar bills. The story catches the ear of a Hollywood director across on the other coast. A film studio and a bit of funding come together. They want a big name to carry it. They send the script to Eminem, who's just shot a film about freestyle rap battles. They send it to Mark Wahlberg, who did one about the porn industry. Stars who turn underground stories into breakout hits. Neither bite, so the producers reconsider. If there isn't a big name in the credits, the car will have to be the star of the Fast and the Furious. They pour money into stunts and CGI, making the cars snarl, spit, and spin. And they hire Paul, a smoldering, stubbled accessory for the driver's seat. If he wasn't in it, Paul would be in the cinema watching. He loves cars, speed, power. The feeling of finding the edge and then finding a little bit more. But he knows that it has to have heart as well as horsepower. This is how he explains the success of the film. We don't want to take ourselves too seriously. The second we become pretentious, we've killed it. People really connect with the whole family dynamic, the loyalty and the bonds, the simple themes. People identify with it because it's not trying to be anything it's not. It's Paul who gives it this human element among the petrol and pistons. He knows it's about the bonds between lovers, friends and colleagues. The friendships forged in adversity. The links that hold strong under strain. The things that are really important. At the end of each shoot, Paul leaves Los Angeles. He goes into the wild. He finds the backwaters, bush country and quiet beaches. He reconnects, recharges, rethinks his next move away from the showbiz swirl. Out there in the surf, under wide skies, he takes account and he realizes the balance has changed. His film career started because he was short on cash, but the Fast and the Furious franchise has brought in billions Its diverse cast, simple storylines and action sequences have been a global hit. Paul himself owns cars worth millions. He has five BMW M3 lightweight editions, each valued at hundreds of thousands of pounds. He's got money, but now what's missing is time and purpose. So when his agent comes to him and says, the producers of Superman want to talk to him, Paul says he'd prefer not to. When he overhears a couple agonizing over an engagement ring before the man's deployment to Iraq, he quietly wanders to the till, pays the $9,000 price tag, and walks out without a word. When 13-year-old Meadow says she wants to move to California to live with him, he turns his bachelor pad into a home for the two of them. And when an earthquake hits Haiti in 2010, he can't just sit and watch. Paul heads out there. He charters a helicopter, taking doctors, construction experts into the countryside. The areas that no one else has reached, that no one's helped. As he climbs out the chopper, he finds destruction. Landslides. Collapsed buildings. Families decimated by death. But for Paul, it's also the start of something. It's Thanksgiving weekend and Paul wants people to give more. Like he gives, generously from the heart and to those in need. Under a blue California sky, 30 miles north of Hollywood, he puts on an event. It's a strange mix. There's humming engines and polished concrete. The heady smell of engine oil and tyre rubber. Muscle cars and cuddly toys. Yep, you heard that right. Cuddly toys. Bags of bears and plush dogs. Toy trikes and mini rubber footballs. Piled high in a corner. A garage turned grotto. Paul's using his celebrity for charity. For his charity. Reach out worldwide. The day's called the winter drive. It's a play on words. It's a chance to meet a face of the fast and the furious. To see cars that look like they've skidded straight off the set. But it's also an invite to a different sort of drive. A collective effort to change the world for the better. It's for the Philippines. It was a story that topped the bulletins a month ago. 200 mile per hour winds, crashing waves, Roofs ripped from buildings. The pictures were dramatic, and the news channels splashed them over screens across America. But as the winds die down, so does the coverage. The cleanup is less newsworthy. The damage to children's minds and family bonds is harder to watch. That's what Paul's collecting for toys for the children of the Philippines. Simple things that may give a moment of joy. Things that might send a message that lasts a lot longer. A message that the world hasn't forgotten. The same message Paul and his team delivered when they landed on a hillside in Haiti. It's near the end of the day. The crowds are thinning. The pile of toys stops growing. And Paul spots his friend Roger. Roger works in money. He tells the super-rich how to save, but he and Paul like to talk about spending it as well. Roger is reversing his latest purchase into a parking bay. It's a red Porsche, a Carrera GT. Only a few hundred were ever made. It's got leather seats, a top-end stereo, but underneath the trimmings, it's a pure racing machine. Stripped down and souped up, It rides hard, fast, and unforgiving. Paul hops into the front seat next to Roger. He surprises his friend. He says, hey, let's go for a drive. Roger laughs, shifts the gear stick from reverse to first, and creeps the car back through the crowd. It's the last words anyone hears from Paul. The engine opens with a throaty roar as they head for the road. The next thing the crowd hears is a bang. The bang of a supercar spinning and fracturing. The Porsche, Roger at the wheel, and Paul in the passenger seat, clipping a street light and crunching into a tree. People look at each other and then they run. By the time they get to the car, the flames are 20 feet high. Black smoke spirals up into the blue sky. The Porsche's red, smooth curves are gone. Instead, it's a broken, twisted wreck in the middle of the blaze. They don't know what killed Paul and Roger, whether it was the impact or the inferno, but his friends and fans know how they'll honor him. Yellow police tape surrounds the crash site for the next eight hours. And when it's removed, when the fire's out and the debris's cleared, they're ready. Like a car rally, like a street race, it spreads through word of mouth and across the internet. Whispers that come together into a roar. It's a vigil that no one announced, no one organised, and no one moves on. People come from across the state, They lay candles, flowers, messages and toys. A Christmas tree is placed in the middle of it all. A reminder to give, like Paul. His fast and furious co-stars are there, mixing with fans. Vin Diesel takes a loudspeaker from the cab of a police car. He talks to the crowd. He says Paul is an angel up in heaven. But most of the tributes are about how down-to-earth Paul was. People from different eras and ages, from in front of the camera and behind, all touched by the time he gave them and the happiness they shared. Actress Goldie Horn says Paul was a very special human being. Actor Tyrese Gibson, who played opposite him in Fast and Furious, calls him the nicest dude on human feet. Unlike Tyrese and Goldie, Mark Webb isn't someone most stars talk to. He works out the logistics of a film set, making sure the right equipment is in the right place on the right day. Nothing glitzy. This is how he remembers Paul. As far as people go, they didn't come any finer, any more gracious. He always treated everybody with respect. That's the balance, the tightrope Paul walks. He wants to see happiness in others, he wants them to thrive. But he wants to live his own life on the edge. It comes with risks. For Paul, obviously. But for others, too. His ashes float out to sea on a boat his family built while they watch on from the shore. One final adventure into the surf and out to sea. His daughter, Meadow, is just 15. As the tide turns, as the sands shift, they can only think about time. The same realization that Paul reached, reinforced for those left behind. After Paul's death, his brother Cody tells the rest of the family about a conversation they had. It was on the morning of the winter drive, a phone call just hours before the crash. This is what Cody remembers his brother saying. Paul would always say, I only have five more years until Meadow graduates high school. Four more years. He was really started to figure that out. Paul said to me, I want to retire. I want to be full-time for Meadow. I want her to go to the same high school you went to. But instead, adolescence is an adventure. Meadow has to navigate without Paul. His life's a guiding light in front of her. His friends and family are behind her, but her father's support is missing from her side. That's the truth, that's the reality. Wherever the journey takes you, however you live your life, there's always someone in the passenger seat. This episode of Death of a Film Star was written by Mike Henson and performed by me, Elroy Spoonface Powell. Spoon the voice guy. For research, we watched scenes from the Fast and Furious franchise and the I Am Paul Walker documentary made after his death. We also read from the archives of Hollywood Reporter, Entertainment Weekly, The Guardian, and Vibe magazine. The music we used is from our partners BMG production music. If you'd like another series to listen to, try our other show, Death of a Rockstar, and start with our episode about Chester Bennington. Thanks for listening.
1: Crowd Network, a place where you belong.
0: Hey Hey there, I'm Hannah, and I'm
1: Audrey. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon!